0: Um, well, again, my name is Kelsey, and um, I have the privilege of being the director of Youth Angola Ministries at Mount Hermon. I love what I get to do, um, and I grew up coming to Mount Hermon as a family camper, and so family camp is, is what I know the most, what I'm most most familiar with um, from having been a camper myself. Um, so my family was actually, my parents were here just during week four, and so they sat in the back of this seminar knowing that I was going to be talking about them and about our family, and um, they wanted to sit kind of a anonymously, and then I pointed them out at the very, very end, and so some people went and asked them some questions as well. Um, but let me just pray for our time together, and then we'll dive right in. God, thank you for uh, just this cozy morning I'm at Mount Hermon. Thank you for the time that we get to be here for um, the week, and I just pray that um, in whatever everyone's Thursday is currently holding, Lord, that you would give them peace, that you would give them rest, um, and Lord, that you would just bless this time, and that um, the words that I say would be pleasing, nodding to you. And it's In your name we pray. Amen. Um, well, thank you guys for being here. I, uh, a couple disclaimers right from the get-go um, is I am a young adult, um, and we'll talk a little bit more about what um, the confusion of young adulthood is later on, um, but I am not a parent. and that's one of the things that most of the time people ask questions about of how as a parent um, do I parent my young adult child who is no longer a child's age but will always be my child. Um, And so my hope in this time together is really just to give some information to let you know a little bit about the current world that young adults are sitting in. um, Some about young adult development, kind of where they're at, some resources that have been helpful for myself um, and for others. But really just to set up for further conversations. And so for the young adults in the room, for them to have conversations with their parents or with others about what they're currently going through in life and help that they might need, um, or for you as a parent to go have a conversation with your youth, your young adult uh, child, um, my hope is that it'll just give more conversations um, and more food for thought for you to con- um, consider as you're interacting with young adults. Um, one, of my, one of my favorite parts of my job... Um, there's a lot of parts of my job that I love, but one of my favorite parts is working with the summer staff and working with the interns. Um, I work with the interns uh, one year or two years. Their intern program is for that length of time. And then for the summer staff, for you know three months during the summer, many of them will return, so then I get to see them for a three-month time from one year to the next. Uh, but I love working with them. Um, And there's some really specific things that they're processing that they're trying to figure out, and there's a lot of things that our world currently and the culture in it has not done a, a good job of setting up young adults for the world that they're going to live in. Um, My parents have told me, um, I'm the second of four kids, and so I have an older sister. Um, I'll talk a lot about my family in this seminar. Uh, My older sister, she lives in Colorado with her husband and three kids. There's me my younger brother who's in the military, and then my youngest sister who's a teacher um, internationally, and then she's working at Redwood this summer. All of us are around three years apart, and so at one point, my older sister was on the cusp of being 30, I was 27, my brother was 24, and my youngest sister was 21. <laughs> and so all of us were just spanning the entire decade of the 20s. And my parents had told us that when, when we were kids, parenting, that was an exhausting season of time to be a parent of a young child. All the energy and um, late nights, it's, it's exhausting. The teenage years were rough because of the angsty rebelliousness. And then when we got to our 20s, they were thinking like, okay, good, they're now adults. But they've told me that the 20s were actually the hardest season for them as parents, and as they're still going through it too, because of learning how to still be a parent, but to your children who are now adults, and to watch them make their own decisions and to set them up as adults, knowing I no longer have the role that I used to have, and how do I stand by and encourage and guide them While they're making their own decisions, and so um, when I've mentioned at the start of the seminar, I've had a couple people be like, "Wait, seriously? (laughs) Like, are you going to give us any hope in this seminar?" (laughs) So um, I know that it's—I don't know what it's like to be a parent, but I know from listening to my parents that the 20s are a really hard season of life. It's hard as a young adult to get through your 20s. It's hard to be a parent watching your children in their 20s as well. So we're going to talk through some things that might be helpful in that. before we get to it, Young Adults is currently spanning the generation of Millennials and Gen Z. And so We're going to spend a little bit of time looking at those, um, those stereotypes of those generations. Um, it's, it's stereotypes for a reason, but it's a broad generalization. Um, but each generation and what it's known for uh, kind of piggybacks off of the previous one. So to better understand Gen Z, we have to look at the Millennials. To better understand Millennials, we look at Gen X. Gen X boomers. Um, We could continue going further back, but it would just take too much time. So we're going to start with boomers and to see how one generation that follows the next one, oftentimes it's in wanting to be different than the previous generation. They want to be different than either their parents' generation. They want to be different than the one that preceded them. And there's also a little bit of overflow between generations. And so the younger millennials actually adopt more of the Gen Z stereotypes. The older millennials kind of adopt more of Gen X. So they kind of bleed into each other. Um, But each generation is known for some different things, especially in what happened during those generations and the shaping events of our world that then drastically affected the mindsets of each generation. So rather quickly, but to give us a, kind of a good scope of it, boomers are anyone who's born between 1944 to 1964. So they're currently 55 to 75 years old. Um, some of the shaping events for boomers is post-World War II optimism. That's why they're called the boomers, because everyone came back from World War II, um, wanted to settle down, have a home, kind of the, the um, optimism of life. Um, the Cold War, and walking through the Cold War, and the hippie movement. Um, There were some really shaping cultural events that happened. Um, Interestingly, there's financial patterns through each generation as well, uh, how they go about their finances. And so for boomers, what's really interesting is that this generation is experiencing the highest um, rise in student loan and student debt. Um, They have the belief that you should take care of your children and set them up for success, but they don't plan on leaving any inheritance. That's the boomers. From there, um, we have the Gen X. And so that's anyone who was born between 1965 to 1979. So it's anyone in the age range of 40 to 54. Um, They are becoming more digitally savvy. They'll still opt to read media through newspaper and magazines, like physical copies of things, but they're becoming more digitally savvy. And many of them spend, they said on average, about seven hours a week on Facebook which is also why you will not see any current youth student on Facebook. <laughs> because as soon as Gen X started to adopt, ah, Facebook is a thing, the students were like, nope, we're not gonna use it anymore. Um, they are a little bit more digitally savvy, um, but they still will go in to do like in-person transactions like at a bank rather than online, but they are growing more digitally savvy. Um, some shaping events for Gen X is the end of the Cold War. Um, seeing that come to fruition, the rise of personal computing, and then they often feel lost between the two big generations, between the boomers to millennials. Gen X often feel some, somewhat kind of like a middle child. Of They feel kind of overlooked in some ways um, between the two major um, generations right now. For Gen X, they are trying to raise a family. They're trying to pay off student loans. Um, they're also trying to take care of their aging parents and so for gen x the financial strains are putting a um, a lot on their resources and so gen x generation feels a high financial strain in everything that they're trying to accomplish right now Um, Then we come to Millennials. They are anyone who's born between 1980 to 1994. They've also been called Gen Y because they sit between Gen X and Gen Z, but they're more commonly referred to as the Millennials. Um, Right now it's anyone who's between the ages of 25 to 39. And so for young adults, it's kind of the younger end of the Millennials. Um, For Millennials, I'm a Millennial, and Millennials are often divided into two groups because the older Millennials Social media didn't necessarily become a thing until college. And so it wasn't, it's a, been a part of their young adult experience, but it's not as much of a shaping event as it is for the younger millennials who were introduced to it in junior high and how they went through junior high and high school with social media that affected them a little bit more than a college student who's learning how to best use social media. So millennials are often split between the two. There's kind of a part A and a part B because it's such a broad generation and the stereotypes of it, you kind of fall anywhere in in the middle of it. Um, the term millennial first became coined in 1989 when it was uh, looking at the future generation who is going to be kind of coming of age during the turn of the millennium, um, during Y2K. I still remember Y2K when I was in seventh or eighth grade, but I remember everyone, like the hustle and bustle, everyone talking about what was going to be happening, all the cans in our pantry, like we weren't really sure what was going to happen. <laughs> and then I remember being at the New Year's Eve party and being like, and nothing happened, computers are still working. Okay, now we just have a ton of cans to like make our way through but I remember being like that, being a conscious thought. Um, For millennials, they are extremely comfortable with mobile devices, um, cell phones, um, but 32% will still use their computer for big purchases. They're not as savvy of using their phone for for everything as Gen Z is. Um, They have multiple social media accounts. Um, We'll see that in Gen Z as well. Um, Typically, millennials have um, a very low tolerance for inefficiency or for poor service because they're used to everything being really, really snappy. They can get anything, anything that you want at the moment's notice. Some shaping events for millennials is a Great Recession. That's been a big, um, a big part of what they've experienced. The technological explosion of the internet and 9-11. I still remember my freshman year um, when 9-11 happened and my mom running up the stairs and driving to school that day and listening to what was going on the radio. I remember what I was wearing. It's like this like, burned-in-my-memory moment of like the world has suddenly changed and there's a lot of fear. Um, what's interesting is that this upcoming presidential election is going to be the first time that there's going to be a whole pool of voters who are not alive during 9-11 and how that's a really int- they're noticing a political shift of mindset based on those who they know that it happened but they don't have any personal tie to seeing the effects of it. And so recognizing that 9/11 shaped my generation similar to how for my parents they talk about JFK's assassination and they remember like that day or they remember certain moments of the cold war and hiding under the desks and having to do drills it shaped them in a way that's different than myself just hearing about it. Um, Financially, millennials are entering the workforce. They're entering the workforce with a very high degree of student loan and debt. And so um, there is a ton of financial instability for millennials. So what they're noticing in in, um, banking trends is that millennials want um, access or experience rather than ownership. The thought process uh, for a millennial to think that they'll ever own a home is too far down the road. So they would rather have the experience and have access to what they want rather than own anything, which is just an interesting trend that we'll see. Um, And then we come to um, Gen Z. So it's anyone born between 95 to 2015. So right now that's anyone who's four years old to 24. So we see that the young adults are on the older end of Gen Z. So we're going to kind of camp out between those two. The younger millennials, the older Gen Z. Other nicknames for this generation is the I generation, post-millennials. Um, millennials have also been referred to as the Gen Me because of the narcissism. That's a big trend in millennials. Um, but then the I generation for, um, for Gen Z. The average Gen Zer will have received their first mobile phone, their first cell phone, at age 10 on average. Um, but they grew up playing on their parents' tablets. And oftentimes, um, kids are well-versed, my nieces and nephew, they are well-versed on how to use a screen, how to use a tablet. But oftentimes it comes because they've watched their parents use them. And so the habits that are formed for kids as they're watching their parents are sucked into their phone. Uh, Gen Z grew up in a very hyper-connected world. Um, That's one of the great things about the Internet and social media is that you're able to connect um, at a global level. They spend, on average, about three hours a day on their mobile device. I think it's probably actually higher than that, but it's on average. Um, What's interesting is that Gen Z, in the little bit that we've seen so far as they're, you know, in a broad age range right now, is that they are opening up savings accounts much earlier than um, previous generations. So they are hypothesizing that Gen Z is actually going to be very financially stable because they've seen the financial strain of millennials and Gen X. And so they've seen the strain that has happened and they're making decisions saying, I don't want that in my life. And so they're noticing a trend that this generation could be seen as much more fiscally responsible um, because of seeing the strain that it's had on previous generations. Some shaping events for them is uh, smartphones, social media. It's just part of their world. The thought of not having a social media account is foreign to them. They've never known a country not at war, which is interesting. Um, and the financial struggles that they've seen of their previous um, generations and their parents. Um, When I was teaching a seminar a number of weeks ago, I had a parent come up afterwards and and just ask some questions about the the lack of perseverance that they see in current young adults. And I'd have to say that I agree that there is a trend that because things are so um, quickly accessible, um, that for many young adults, if it doesn't bring them a lot of joy right away or if it doesn't affirm their strengths and they don't feel like they're able to contribute, they'll leave rather than stick it out and work harder. And so um, we see that play out in careers of staying at a job and working your way up in the company is kind of a foreign thought to many young adults. It's how can I have a couple years experience here so that I can jump over here and have this job over here, and then after I have a couple years there, then I can jump back over here. It's, there isn't that thought of staying long-term anywhere. Um, we see that in the church young adults if they're volunteering in a ministry and all of a sudden it becomes difficult and it's not as as much fun they'll move to another ministry Um, that'll be more fun for them Um, we also see it in relationships Um, the rise of marriage and divorces um, relationships that are ending um, after only a couple years we kind of see that throughout many millennials and gen z and i think some of it has to do with they have so much choice and they have so much access Um, that if it's not something that they feel valued in right away, um, they will then jump ship and try something else. I think some of this has to do with growing up with a participation award. Okay? You get awarded just for showing up or participating. I see that a little bit with um, many summer staff when they work at Mount Hermon. It's their first time ever having a job. And so we keep that in mind as we're going through the interview process with many of them of saying this is their first like, professional experience where it's, it's a fun job, it's a great job to have, but you need to show up on time. And you need to at least dress somewhat professionally, with, even within camping standards. Um, and for many of them, it's their first, first time ever having a job. And so to kind of walk them through, you're not going to get a gold star just for showing up. <laughs> That's kind of what's expected. Um, and if you're not getting a promotion right away, if you're not being getting all these accolades right away, it's because you need to work and kind of get some some things under your belt first. But many of them are, if they don't feel like they're being promoted or being esteemed right away, they'll then leave to go to somewhere else where they' they'll be more they'll have more to contribute. It's like, well, Part of that is just because we've grown up with a participation award thinking, well, I'm going to get a trophy just for showing up, and that's not how the rest of the world works. Um, What I've also seen, and um, it's a reference that I'll give in a minute, but um, it's called the jar theory, and what they've seen is that, um, let's say you need to go to the store to get jam, and if you go to the store, and let's say it's Costco, and they have 20 different options for you to choose from, They've noticed in this experiment that people who go to the store knowing that they need jam, when they have 20 options in front of them, will leave the store not getting jam because they're too overwhelmed with the amount of choices. And so they said instead, put out six jars. Someone can sample those six jars, even if you have more, but just put out the six. More likely than not, they'll still leave the store with one jam or maybe two, and they'll leave with what they started with um, or what they needed to go to the store with. And what they've seen is that, that theory has also really affected young adults because they've been told you can do anything, um, you can be anyone that you want to be, that for many young adults, they have so many choices, they end up not making any choice. (laughs) Because they're too overwhelmed with having too many options for them. So they've said what's actually better, what's serving them better, is to limit the choices. And what they, um, that's one of the books that I'll talk about is to say, you can't actually, I can't do anything with my job. It takes 10,000 10, hours to become a master at something. Uh, when we have 24 hours in a day, I can't become a master at multiple things. I need to choose. I need to choose one or maybe two that I'm really going to spend my time doing. But instead, young adults have grown up in a world where we've been told you can do anything, you can be, at, be a master at all of these different things, choose all of them, but instead of choosing one and going for it, we end up being too overwhelmed with it, and they end up choosing nothing. And then they're still trying to figure out what their passions are because they're too passionate about too many things or they're not passionate about anything, and they're overwhelmed at their choices. Um, one of the other things that we've noticed, and my sister actually pointed this out because she's um, my nieces and nephew. They're nine and six, and so she's deep in parent-teacher conferences and elementary school and, and that whole world. And so she was telling me that the phrase "a helicopter parent" is um, is one that we've had in the past, um, and the parents who are kind of hovering and wanting to make sure everything is okay. Now it's no longer the helicopter parent, but it's the lawnmower parent who's just paving the trail for their child to come behind them, not needing to lift a finger or do any work. And so there's actually a lot of resources out there that's talking, that they're starting to notice a trend. And there's a book, it's called The Coddling of the American Mind, and how everything is so safe and so easy that we're not teaching students or young adults how to persevere when things get hard. Um, it's kind of the same the same theory of the bird that's needing to peck its way out of the egg or the caterpillar that's needing to get out of the um, cocoon to become a butterfly. There needs to be some struggle in it for them to be able to grow the muscles that they need when they hatch out of that. Right now, we have uh, a, a world where it's helping them break out of their shell, so it's much faster, but then they don't have the muscle that's needed to then be able to do what they need to do. Um, so in the same way for young adults the and for a lot of students, everything is so easy and so paved for them that then when they struggle, they don't know how to cope. They don't know what to do with it. And so um, I think in that we then also see um, a rise in anxiety. We see a rise in complacency. I don't really know what I want to do. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty when it comes for, for young adults. Um, This is a, it's an interesting theory. I would heard someone mention this. I don't know if it's been, um, it's gonna take some time for them to see like the research of it, but they've also wondered if there is physiologically um, a connection between us doing this all day and our head being down um, to the rise in depression and anxiety because we're, our bodies are in this form for so many hours during a day that they're wondering how physiologically is that affecting Then internally, um, our brain and how we're wired, rather than looking up and having a posture where we're a little bit more open, we're engaging with people, we're looking up in creation. Instead, our posture is like this most of the time. And they're wondering if that has anything to do with the rise um, in anxiety and depression that they're seeing, especially with young people, um, because of our bodies being in that form for so many hours a day. Um, a, lot of, a lot of thoughts, I think in the next couple years, I think we're gonna have um, a lot more research out there to be able to show for it. Um, it's just now starting to become um, out there and well accessed. Some other things within uh, young adult development is to look at the ed- development that we go through um, getting ready for young adulthood. And so adolescence, in preparing for a young adulthood, adolescence is, um, the root word is adolescere, which means to grow to maturity. And so adolescence is just the period of time where you're growing to maturity between childhood to adulthood. And so there's two bookends that happen for adolescence. It starts in biology and it ends in culture. And the fact that it ends in culture is not a good thing. (laughs) But it starts in biology when our body gets started with puberty. We can't really control it. It just happens. It's part of our natural design. But then, so that's the start of adolescence, when you're growing to maturity, your body is physically growing to maturity, but then our culture hasn't defined when that adolescence season ends, and when adolescence is over and you're now an adult. And so we see that um, in the confusion of adolescence. Pre 1900, adolescence and puberty was starting around 14, and then you culturally were considered an adult at 16. You joined the workforce. And so there was about a year and a half of adolescence, uh, to grow to maturity between childhood to adulthood. In the 1970s, um, puberty was starting around the age of 13, getting a little bit younger, and then you were considered an adult at 18. You're out of the house, out of high school. In 1970, it was probably with um, things that were going on globally and politically as well, being able to join the military. So then it was five years, from 13 to 18, five years of adolescence. Now, in 2012, so this is even seven years ago, it's probably a different data now. Puberty on average is starting at 11.7. Um, it's getting younger and younger. There's a lot of um, research out there for why that is that puberty is naturally starting at a much younger age. Some of it might be um, diet, climate, like things that are going on just within the world that we live in. It could also be um, just what they're, um, what they're accessed to. Um, especially with um, sexual activity in the media, who knows if that has a, a play on kickstarting some puberty at a younger age? There's a lot of different research out there of why is it that the puberty is that puberty is happening at a much younger age now. Um, but puberty is starting around age 11. In 2012, it was said that you were no longer an adolescent but a young adult in the mid 20s. How lazy is that? They didn't even set an age. It was just like, man, somewhere in the mid-20s you'll become an adult. So now it's from 11 to your mid-20s, that's a span of 15 years. So it went from being a year and a half season of adolescence to grow to maturity and now it's a span of 15 years. So there's a confusion for young adults of at what point am I no longer a young adult but I'm just a full-fledged adult? (laughs) When does that happen? When I ask summer staff, because I do this part of this training with them, and I'll say, how many of you, these are college students or post-college, how many of you feel like an adult? And I'll have a couple of them, will raise their hand, most of the time, it's this, and I'm like, what does this mean? You're like half an adult, half not, and then others are shaking their head. These are like 22-year-olds being like, no, I'm not an adult. And I'll ask them, like, well, what is it that makes you an adult, or why are you not yet an adult? And everyone has a different reason. It's Well, I'm not financially independent. I still, like my parents are still paying some of my bills. Um, I'm not married, I don't have a house, I don't have kids. Um, I feel like I just am not at a place where I'm able to take care of myself just yet. It's all these different things where we all have a different definition of what it means to be an adult. And so then there's this whole generation of people who are of adult age, but don't really feel like they're an adult and don't really know how to do this thing we call adulting. You've turned it into a verb of adulting. Some of this confusion comes from, on an aspirin bottle, an adult dosage is when you, you take it when you're 12. At the DMV, you are an adult when you have a license, that's 16. To drink alcohol, you need to be 21. To go to a movie theater and see a movie of any rating without parent permission would be 13 or 17, depending on the movie to vote in the US election is 18, to rent a car is 25, to stay by yourself and to rent a room at a Holiday Inn is 16 years old, to serve in the military is 18, and then to fly as an adult is 2. <laughs> Somewhere our culture is telling us that you become an adult at all of these different ages, but no one knows. And so instead of saying, all right, how do we help a generation move from childhood through adolescence up to adulthood, Instead, we've coined a term extended adolescence, and now we have young adulthood. We've just given more terms, so now there's a whole group of people in their 20s and early 30s who don't feel like an adult and don't know how to be. Um, In the stages of adolescence to growing to be um, an adult, there are three different sections that you go through, early, mid, and late, and they set up then how you're gonna become a young adult. Um, What's interesting is that when you go through puberty, your your body naturally, it is the second most traumatic experience that your body will go through naturally. Unfortunately, there's a lot of things in our world, um, and how broken it is, that many of us will experience much more trauma, um, unfortunately, that um, is the world that we live in. But naturally, for each person, just as our human bodies have been designed, the first traumatic experience is birth. (laughs) <laughs> of birth to a two-year-old, there is a lot of very, very rapid growth and change and learning. A newborn to a two-year-old, they are constantly changing at such a rapid rate. Every time you see a, a new kid, like they're growing exponentially from one month to the next. They're learning new things. The second most is when you go through puberty. And all of a sudden, your body is drastically changing in a way that you're not necessarily able to control but you're having to like relearn how to do some things after your body has gone through puberty. And so we see that there's what happens after these events mirror each other and so the sampling phase for a zero to two year old they're in the sampling phase and they're sampling the world through experiences, they're touching everything. They're putting everything in their mouth. Um, my niece Callie, when she was little, she'd go over to a light socket and just like lick it. She's just experiencing everything. We had to like grab her away and make sure she wasn't putting stuff in her in her mouth. They're just sampling the world. A three to a seven-year-old, they're in the testing phase. They're asking why to everything. Why is my? When I was sitting with my other niece when she was four. She was asking why to everything. We're just watching a TV show and she's like, well, why is the princess sad? Why did the prince say that? Why is the evil stepmother, what is she doing? She just wanted to know why. She wanted to better understand. She was really fascinated too with how everyone was connected. So my mom is your sister, like I'm a sister to Callie, but then my grandma is your mom. Like she was just really trying to better understand like how her world worked. And they're in the testing phase, they're asking why to everything. And then an eight to a 10-year-old is in the concluding phase. I think some of the most confident people on the planet are the eight to 10-year-olds, right? They know how the world works. They know who they want to be when they grow up. They go out on the playground and they immediately make best friends. They are some of the most confident people. So how is it that these confident eight to 10-year-olds who know how the world works and know that they want to be an astronaut one day and they're going to do it, All of a sudden, those are the shy and the insecure junior hires stepping foot in middle school. It's because then we go through the sampling and testing and concluding phases all over again in our new bodies, (laughs) and so junior hires are in the sampling phase. And when I give this training to staff, I tell them, it doesn't give you a right to treat a junior hire like you would a toddler. Mm -hmm. We're not meant to patronize them, but more of to understand that in the same way that a toddler is experiencing the world in a new way, our junior hires are experiencing the world in a new way as well. Their mind is growing. They're being able to go from concrete thought to abstract thought. Their brains are developing, their bodies are developing. It's a very uncertain time. Um, one of my favorite stories from working at Ponderosa is that we had a junior hire years ago, they're probably an adult by now, but they were at camp and they ate a poisonous plant. And my boss at the time was on the phone with like the UC Davis Medical Center trying to identify this plant and trying to figure out what happened because the student was having such an allergic reaction to it. And so when my boss asked the student, like, why did you, were you eating the plants at Ponderosa? like were you, were you, did, um, did someone put you up to this? Were you bullied? Are you not getting enough food at camp? <laughs> like, What's wrong that you're eating the foliage? And the student's response is like, seemed like a good idea. <laughs> Come on, give us more than that. And junior hires are incredibly bright. They're incredibly smart, but they're just experiencing the world in a new way. And they're trying to figure out their place in it. Uh, for myself, I grew to be this height very quickly Um, in seventh and eighth grade. So very quickly I became the tallest girl on my soccer team, tallest girl in the room. um, And playing soccer, I'd grown up playing soccer, but there were a couple games while I was going through my growth spurt, that I just could not do normal functions of the game. My coach and my parents were like, Kels, just tie your cleats, Like, what's wrong? Like, You've played this sport for years and I would just go take a step and I'd fall over and I would just trip over myself. The ball wasn't even near me and I was tripping over myself. And what they realized was I wasn't used to running with this height and so I needed to relearn something that I had grown up doing. I had to relearn it in the new body that I was in Junior highers then move to high school and so from the sampling we go to then the testing phase. And so high schoolers are asking why to everything. They're testing the bounds, they're testing you, they're testing themselves, they're testing the world around them. So sometimes it's not as innocently as a four-year-old or a five-year-old asking why. Um, but oftentimes at a high school week at Ponderosa um, junior high week campers are just excited to be there and they love the staff before they've even met them. For a high school week, I walk out to talk to students, and I get a lot of this. <laughs> it's this little stance. And I can see that they're kind of like looking around, being like, oh, this actually looks kind of cool. All right, I think I kind of like my counselor, but they won't show it until Tuesday <laughs> because they're kind of testing, testing the waters. Um, for many high schoolers in the testing phase, they're, it's almost like they're trying on new clothes. Imagine someone going to the store, trying on some different clothes, and then seeing if it fits and you're seeing how you like it and how it fits on you. High schoolers are doing that with their personalities and with their interests and with their behaviors. They're trying on these different outfits, trying on these different hats, and they're trying to see, does this feel like me? Do I like the person that I am in this? Is this who I wanna be? Um, They're also testing to see how other people respond to them. Do my friends like me more? Do the person that I'm attracted to, are they showing me more interest? How do the adults in my life interact with me? They're trying on these different hats, but they're doing it in what they're interested in in life because they're testing out who they want to be. Um, From there, we get to concluding phase. And so for concluding, it's those who are entering college or starting to make some conclusions of who they want to be in life, but also how they want to live. And that's a good thing that they need to be able to do to start having answers to some of their questions. The three biggest questions that are um, in any stage of this for adolescents is a question of identity, affinity, and autonomy. Identity, who am I? Who do I want to be? Affinity, to whom or to what do I belong? And then autonomy, what makes me unique and what do I have to offer? So at each of these stages, those are the questions that they're wrestling with. Who do I want to be? What makes me unique? What do I have to offer? Who do I want to belong to? Um, When it comes to camp and having students here, we often will create whatever the theme is for the week to answer these questions in light of what the Bible says. And so for students, they're already asking these questions. I think a question of identity, I think that's more of a lifelong thing that we're questioning, that we're finding answers to, but especially for junior high and high school students and for young adults. And so we will use whatever the theme is for the week to best point them to answering those questions in light of what God says about their identity, affinity, and autonomy. Um, So for example, a couple years ago at Ponderosa, our theme is called Upside Down, and it was the verse in Philippians 3.20 and 21 that says, but you're a citizen of another kingdom, and we eagerly await a savior from there. And that entire week, we were studying the book of Philippians and what it means to live like you belong to another world. And so the questions of identity, what does that mean for how we live our life, but then also belonging. We belong to another kingdom, so we should reflect and be ambassadors of that kingdom while we live here on Earth. Those questions of identity and affinity. Um, and so for your students, those are the things that they're wrestling with. And so for, from the sampling to the testing to the concluding phase, they're trying to figure out answers to these questions. And so when they get to young adulthood, to the concluding phase, it's good for them to start making some of those conclusions. Um, for junior highers, they're asking a lot of what questions. For high school, they're asking a lot of like, well, who's going to be there? They're asking a lot of why questions. Um, all of their meaning is developed through relationships, as opposed to in junior high, its meaning is developed through what they're doing. Um, when it comes to the concluding phase, and for young adults, a lot of meaning is tied to the significance and the purpose that they have. Young adults want to contribute. They don't want to be on the sidelines. They want to be considered adults who have a place at the adult table to have conversations and have input. But oftentimes, they just don't know how to get there. Um, And so they're asking a lot of why questions. My, um, what I've told people is that some of the most frustrating moments I have in my job, um, and it's a good frustration because it helps me lean into those moments more, is with some of the young adult summer staffers. Um, when they're in this concluding phase, but they're not teachable. And so oftentimes I'll encourage them, like, you're making some decisions of who you want to be and how the world works, and you're finding your place in it. Also stay teachable. Never let that piece go, because you'll never fully arrive. There's always more for you to learn, more for you to develop in. And so what I mean by that is when um, I'll have a summer staffer make a comment or a phrase like, well, you know, I'm in college now, and I took a course um, on, in my communications class for the last semester, and I really think that the biggest problem that our world has right now is this, and in taking this class, I've really become an expert at it, and so if any of you have any questions and want to learn from me, I have a lot that I can give you. Uh, actually, not, maybe not verbatim, was a comment made in just a summer staff training session back in June. And so I just kind of stood there and I was kind of like, all right, and I was able to recognize, like, oh, they just like, one of my biggest pet peeves is when someone's not teachable. <laughs> and so when it's moments of like, I am now an expert in something that I've taken a six month class in. But when I recognized instead, um, because there were a lot of staff sitting in the room and they were saying it in front of everyone, I was like, all right, how I respond to them is also going to say a lot. And so In those moments, I have to remind myself, it is good that they're making conclusions. They're recognizing that there's something that they're passionate about. There's something that gives a fire in their belly. They've noticed that, that is great. They want to help, they want to teach others. Those are good things to encourage and to help motivate them in. And also to give them the reminder of, these are great things, stay teachable. There's more for you to learn, there's more for me to learn. Let's learn about this together and help offer these things to the world while also knowing that there's more for us to learn along the way, too. And so the staying teachable piece, I think, is what's needed as people are um, going through the concluding phase. one of the um, biggest res- resources, there's two resources that I've used. Neither of them are written from a Christian perspective, and so I wanna give that disclaimer. Um, I believe one of them is a Christian author, but she doesn't write from a Christian standpoint. And um, these two books that have been really influential um, in my own understanding of working with young adults, but also being a young adult myself. So the first one is called The Defining Decade, and it's by a woman named Dr. Meg J. J. A. Y. J-A-Y. J-A-Y. She's the one who talked a lot about the jar theory. It's um, called The Defining Decade by Meg Jay. Um, I believe she's a Christian, but again, she doesn't write from necessarily a Christian perspective, but she spent a lot of time as a counselor and as a therapist um, talking with 20-somethings and 30-somethings and recognizing that there was such um, a trend that once the young adults became 30, they looked back on their 20s and thought, oh no, I was treating my 20s as this extended adolescence, I'm just going to have fun and I'll figure it out later. And then they arrive at 30 and they realize that they haven't built any career capital. They're expecting their dream job just to fall out of nowhere, um, that they haven't built their resume in a way that they're going to be able to get their dream job and all of a sudden their timelines are pushed way far out and they're realizing what was I doing this whole last 10 years, Um, not setting up for the future that I wanted to have. So she focuses a lot on work, love and relationships, and then the brain and the body, and looking at how our 20s and how we use our 20s really set up what the rest of um, life is going to look like and some of the necessary things that we need to be considering in our 20s rather than waiting until our 30s. And the other book is called Extreme Ownership. Um, it's written by two Navy SEALs, uh, Jocko Willink and Leif Babin. Willing is W-I-L-L-I-N-K, and Babin is B-A-B-I-N. Uh, it's called Extreme Ownership, um, and they write from a military perspective. Um, they're both very decorated Navy SEALs who um, were part of the war in Afghanistan, and then in engaging in warfare over there, came back and retrained the Navy SEALs of what they were actually going to be facing. And so they were really influential in some behind-the-scenes behind the things for training the current soldiers. So they speak from a military perspective. um, So it is grim. Um, They don't do it in a way to be explicit or graphic, but more of they learned these leadership principles that applied to the battlefield and then recognize when they brought it back that a lot of those leadership principles are just about leadership in general. And it doesn't need to be just employed at a military level, but just in Um, as a civilian, as a leader in business, in life. Um, And so I think that phrase, extreme ownership, taking ownership of your life and taking responsibility for yourself, I think is a missing piece that we often don't talk about with young adults when we talk about adulting. What does adulting even mean, as people are throwing that term around? Adulting is just taking ownership of yourself as an adult, as well as taking ownership for the things that you have control of in your life. And so I think that's a missing piece. Um, It's one of the best leadership books I've read in a while. But again, it's not a book about it's not pros and cons for the war or military or politics. It's nothing like that. It's more of here's the situation that we encountered. This is the principle that we learned. And this is how you can apply it to your day-to-day life and business. Um, but since everyone has different opinions about the military, I kind of give that disclaimer as well, just to be mindful of some of the things that they talk about in the book. But one of the best books on the leadership that I've read, um, because I think that term ownership is what is often missing when people talk about, what does it look like to be a young adult? What does it look like to become an adult? I really think it has to do with, in what ways are you taking ownership of your life? What are you doing to take ownership of your career, your resume, your relationships? Um, She talks about this in the the defining decade, that you can't choose the family that you were born into, but you can choose a family that you wanna become part of. You can choose who you're gonna marry, or if you're gonna have kids, or what your family is going to look like, so you can choose your family just not the one that you were necessarily born into biologically. Um, For myself as a young adult, um, I'll share a couple quick stories and then open it up for any questions that you might have for me. Um, With my siblings and with my parents, um, I think one of the best things that my parents did um, for me, they had these these milestone moments with my siblings and I. And so when we were going to enter puberty, Uh, My mom took me away for a weekend, and she had this moment of like we went away for a weekend, she told me about the wonders of life and what was going to happen. But I had this moment with my mom and my dad did it with my brother. And Then when I was in high school, my dad took me out on a date, my mom took my brother out, and um, it was to show us how to be respected and how to show respect um, in growing in dating relationships with other people, and what to expect of how to be treated. And then, I don't think I really set this up, but it was really impactful for me. When I got my job at Mount Herman as an intern years ago, um, I went home for a weekend to visit with my parents, and my mom w- told me, we're going to go do some errands. And we- she took me around town and put everything in my name. My car, uh, AAA, DMV, my cell phone. She put everything in my name. And so, it was just us doing errands. But I've told her since then that I think that was a really a necessary milestone in my brain of oh I have a job and now it's my responsibility to start paying for these things and to have things in my name it, it felt like okay I'm now an adult I need to pay these bills I need to be responsible I need to kind of learn how to best do this and so in each of these sampling testing and concluding phases my parents inserted themselves and then had some of the necessary conversations with us to best set us up for that next stage of life um, in my twenties Um, I decided at one point that there were some things that I was kind of processing in life that I needed some help with, so I decided to see a counselor. It was a Christian counselor, someone local, um, someone that Matt Herman staff had referred me to. I know a lot of people have different ideas or thoughts about um, Christianity and psychology and counseling and therapy, um, but for myself, um, it was one of the most healthy things that I chose to do as an adult. Was to figure out my own like self care, so I saw a counselor for a number of years, and during that time I was processing some really, um, you know, big things of who I wanted to be. And at that same time, um, there were some family dynamics that were going on that were kind of shifting, and um, a family member, my uncle, was going to come live with my mom and my dad. Um, my uncle is a good guy. There wasn't I I was not wanting him to live with my parents. Um, and not because he was an unsafe individual, not because my parents were making a bad call, but for myself, it was a shifting of our family dynamic, and I didn't want that to happen. And I was trying to figure out as I was going through these counseling sessions, how do I voice this to my parents? My, my family is changing, but I don't want it to change. And, and so I went home for a weekend, and I just talked with my parents, and I was very emotional. But my, both of my parents um, came and just kind of sat and talked with me. And looking back on it, my parents were being Jesus to someone who was having a hard time in life. But at the time, my my world was shifting and I was trying to figure out how to best communicate this with my parents. Um, And so looking back on it, I wish I had approached my parents a little differently, but I'm still really glad that I had the conversation because in my mind, it made kind of a milestone moment of the first time that I was having an adult conversation with my parents. Um, As I'm part of this family, but it's now a family of six adults, as opposed to two adults and four kids. And so um, it felt like a moment where I was no longer at the kids' table at holiday dinner. And all of a sudden, the family had extended the big table, and there were more adults able to sit at it. Um, And to feel like I now had a place at that table to have those types of conversations with my parents... And it was about things that they had been going through with the family for years and years, but as a kid, I hadn't recognized it. And so to then learn more things about our family and the family dynamics, but from an adult perspective, took some learning for myself as well. I've then seen that with each of my siblings because my youngest sister, the baby of the family, she got carted around to every soccer tournament and ballet recital and everything. She was just always kind of like brought along for everything. When she went away to college and then came back, and my, all of us have like our spots at the dinner table where we all sit, and all of us were just like engaged in conversation very normally, she would then speak up in a way that we had never really like heard her speak before. And it was this recognition of, oh, there's another adult at this table now, so we need to all kind of adjust. And that was something that my counselor had taught me, of a family learns how to do a dance together. Everyone knows their parts, everyone knows the routine, But as kids are then growing to become adults, they might want to do something different in the dance routine. They might want to have a different part in it. They might want to do it a little differently. And it takes the entire family to relearn the dance for that to then be able to happen again. And so there needs to be some flexibility for parents, for the siblings, whoever's in this family situation to relearn how to do this dance together. Um, And each time a new adult kind of enters, everyone has to kind of relearn that together. Um, I have a few other things that I'll share at the very, very end, but I want to give time for if there's any questions. I know that's just a lot of information, um, but are there any questions of anything that I've talked about or questions that you have about young adults that I could help with? <coughs> yeah. So, and more and more kids are coming up with on the of autism, yeah. 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 That piece of should yeah. So, um, yeah. Absolutely. You know, that's when um, my good friend Michaela, um, she's the one. If you guys got the game show night, um, she and Michael were the ones doing game show night. Um, she's studying. Um, special education, and so, and she's a special needs coordinator for Mount Herman. so she'd be a little bit more well-versed. I can give you her, her email. She knows a little bit more because she's studied it much more than I have, um, so she'd be able to give a more educated response. But I know that there is definitely the rise in it. Um, I think there's a lot of research out there for why that is, or if it's been there for a long time but we we're just now identifying names for it and able to identify it differently. Um, I have seen in the, this is my 12th summer working at Mount Hermon. I have seen a huge rise in um, the amount of medication that students have when they come to camp. Um, And that's where uh, I think. a variety of different reasons um, but that is something that we've seen that students are starting medication at a much younger age but there's also much more medication available to them and so um, the amount of staff as well as campers that come to camp with um, with medications is definitely growing but I think Michaela would probably be able to give a little bit of a better response specifically to um, special needs or autism or anything on the spectrum so I can give you her email um, at the end of this so yeah of course Rod, did you say you have a question? Yeah, yeah. What, what do you feel the church's role is in helping young people navigate all this things? You know, I think what I've seen more of a trend is is that um, more, at least for myself, and I've seen this kind of voice in some summer staff as well, when I went, I went away to a Christian school, and I think in that had a really necessary time of um, questioning my faith, and not because I didn't believe in it, but more out of oh, it's, I'm wanting to be, take responsibility for myself, and so I grew up going to church with my family, but now I'm like, what do I really think? And that's a really necessary thing for, for young adults to be thinking about. Um, but I think, at least within Christian schools, what my experience was, was that um, they did a really good job deconstructing my faith, but then I walked across the stage and got an expensive piece of paper and then didn't really know how to build that back up again. And so, fortunately, I actually came to Mount Herman to be on summer staff, and then started the internship. So I had to kind of face some of those building blocks. But what I've heard more—what I've heard more people voice, young adults, isn't that they necessarily don't believe in God anymore, or that they don't believe in Jesus. But it's more of, I just have so many questions about faith. I have so many questions about Christianity and how the church has hurt people rather than helped people, and I can't reconcile those in my mind. And so. It, what I've heard more people say is, like, I just don't really know what to do with this, and so I'm going to put it up on the shelf, I'm just going to leave it there, and I'll take it down at some other point. And it's more out of that feeling of overwhelm, like, these are just so, and they're so intrinsic to especially those who are raised in the church, that it's pulling apart not just questions about faith, but then questions of identity and family. And if I don't believe in this, how are my parents going to interact with me? And it weaves it so woven together into our whole being that it's a much messier process, but a necessary one to kind of pull some of those parts, um, parts away. So I think for the church, um, I think we see it here with the young adult and the college program too. It takes a choice for young adults to actually participate. And so childcare, day camp, and youth, kind of similar to a church, there's children's programs, new youth programs, but oftentimes the biggest feedback that I get is we want something for the college and young adults. And we'll say like, oh, we have it. And they'll say, well, we don't want to go to it. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) so how do, okay, what can we do to make it better so that you will want to go to it? But I think that's one of the biggest pieces as young adults have to take ownership to actually go or to jump into it, participate in it, but they're used to being spoon in and everything being so set for them in children's and youth ministry that dumping them into adult ministry or young adult ministry is like dumping them into the deep end of the pool without any floaties. And then it's them realizing, oh, I need to choose to be part of this. I'm not even really sure if I want to be part of this. I just feel a little overwhelmed. I'm just not gonna go. And so I think that might be where the church and knowing kind of where they're at and just providing a space. I think what I see a lot of young adults doing is on their own, choosing to be part of their own small groups and choosing to like find a core group of people to be able to process it and go through a book together or be able to like better understand and ask some questions. They're finding those places. So the more that the church could like have some of those things available to them, I wonder if some would would end up going. But they're it's a, a very messy process for someone who's grown up in the church to pull apart what do they really believe in because so much of it is overlapping with relationships and family and it's every dynamic in that way, so yeah. There's a question over here. Yeah, yeah, I think there's, I think there's so many factors to that um, and I think what's also interesting is that for especially Gen Z, they live in such a hyper-connected world and they feel so lonely and so it's kind of like the two, the, the paradox of they are so connected to this community, but they feel so lonely. Um, they have everything handed to them, and yet don't know what to do with it. Um, I think that there's, um, I think there's a lot of reasons for it. I think some is um, culturally and you know diet. I know that there's a lot of things that go into it, just from our physiological standpoint. Um, but I think that there is um, the fear of failure. I think that's a huge one. Um, because I'd be interested to see if that same rise in um, suicide rates and anxiety and depression, if we see that in the same age group in other countries. Or if it's more like in a Western civilization, I think we see it in a different way than we would in other cultures. Um, so I think there are some things that we could probably learn from other cultures of the way that they actually like initiate people into adulthood and um, how they process failure or mistakes. Um, I think the I think Christianity and the American Dream. I think uh, nationally within America, we have a lot of things that just kind of like overlap with each other, um, and I think the fear of failure is huge for students. Um, they don't necessarily have the coping skills of how to be okay not being okay. Um, as well as what do they do when they make a mistake, when they fall down. And so I think that's um, one of the books I haven't yet read, so I can't give a personal recommendation for, but it's currently sitting at my house. Um, it's called The Coddling of the American Mind. And it's that how we've created such a safe space where you can do anything that you want to do, you can be anyone that you want to be. And now we have a culture of young adults and students who are, um, don't necessarily know how to persevere. And so I think um, I think all of that has to do with, it all kind of overlaps with each other. Um, but it's definitely something that we've seen, the rise in anxiety. Um, the amount of students who will need to step out for moments to kind of take a break and to cool down or to um, uh, be able to give their mind a break too at camp. Um, we've needed to make some program adjustments to best care for students who have sensory processing disorder or um, oppositional defiance disorder or all these different names that we now have but trying to figure out like where did all of this come from or do we just now have the name for it? So I think that there's a lot of research out there um, but I don't think we're seeing the same trends in other cultures other than in Western civilization right now. What's great is that there is so, so much research out there. I think that it's going to take a while for people to see like what is currently going on, like what the effects are going to be years later, um, but there are a lot of research out there as people are like we're noticing this so they're noticing what you're noticing and be like we want to help it. We want to rather than just see it kind of continue, what are some things that we can address to help it? Yeah, Jack. Um, Well, I'll say for a few more minutes if you have any questions for me, but one of the things that I would love to leave you with is many people will ask me, man, what is the next generation of the church going to look like when the current youth and young adults are just within the next 15, 20 years going to be within leadership positions of the church? And sometimes people will respond with some fear of like this generation is just so messed up and there's just a lot of fear in it. But what I'll often say is I wish that other people could see um, the Forest View meeting room in the Field House, where the Conference of Youth and Young Adult Students are worshiping Jesus and hearing God's word in a small group with other young adults. I wish you could see a forum up at Ponderosa where there's hundreds of students with young adult staff right next to them who are worshiping Jesus and loving and like stepping into what God has called them to. So I have great hope. God has taken care of us for, for so many years. He's gonna continue to take care of us but he's doing a really incredible work in the lives of the students and the young adults as they are part of the church now, not later, but now, and for them just to have some help finding their place in it, that's some ways that we can come alongside to help them. But I have great hope that God is doing some really incredible things in the lives of young people, and we just need to be able to be mindfully help them out in the ways that we can. So thanks you guys for being here. I'll be here for a couple more questions if you have them.